I'm Alex Wilkins, a graduate student at the Anthropology Department at Ohio State University. Thank you all for joining us for the third episode of A Story of Us, Our Humanity, History, and Department. And I'm Emma Legan. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate students at the Ohio State University's Anthropology Department. In the last two episodes that you heard, we mostly talked about how humans and our nearest relatives, both in the past and present, grow. We discussed growth itself and how both environment and culture can affect development. We also talked about how anthropologists can use human remains to answer biologically based questions. Today, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about how anthropologists, usually archaeologists in this case, might understand the position of children culturally in the past. Children's skeletal remains are the most direct evidence of children and childhood in the past, but skeletal remains might also be buried with grave goods. So think about what someone might place in a child's grave. You might bury a toy with a child. An excavation at Stonehenge found a chalk figurine that is shaped like a hedgehog, although other people have identified it as a pig. Either way, the figurine has been interpreted to be a toy placed with an infant that died during or soon after birth. However, skeletal remains and grave goods are not the only evidence that we have of individuals in the archaeological record. So back in last semester, Mackie and I talked about material culture, which is all of the man-made objects and other materials linked to the activities of that particular culture. And these things can range from our day-to-day trash to beloved personal effects. Today we're going to focus on the material culture of children. So what comes to mind when you think of children? Maybe toys or playgrounds? So think back to when you were a kid yourself, uh, maybe you still are, what did you play with every day? Is there a toy that you lost that you've never forgotten? So for me, I was obsessed with The Lion King for a few years, and I had a stuffed lion, his name was Roarin' Lion, that I slept with every single night, and I couldn't let him go, so he's actually still on the shelf at my parents' house somewhere. I I love that. So I I also had a a near and dear stuffed animal, um, but I guess my personal story would be my pacifiers that I had at way too old an age. And so my, my parents will get a kick out of this if they're listening, but I was using those pacifiers until I was like five. And so my parents would do the passy fairy. So they would have me put my pacifiers under my pillow when I went to bed, and then they would take it and then give me a Barbie the next day. Um, and that's how I got weaned off my passies. <laughs> so those are my toys. <laughs> so these are all examples of fun toys, though. There are lots of other objects and pieces of material culture that children interact with, use, and lose. Right. So maybe think about all of those Go-Gurt tubes or Lunchable containers that you probably went through in elementary school. Uh, Those are items that we particularly associate with specifically children, and they all had to end up somewhere. Yeah, and I kind of have to admit that I occasionally (laughs) still eat things like that. Grad school might be making me revert back to childhood for comfort. Or it might just be because I'm really busy and it's nice and easy. Archaeologists have attributed objects like spoons to children and because of their small size or specific design changes. So, for example, spoons found at Virginia Plantation and spoons found at a mining site in Idaho have both been attributed to children because there were, were specific bins in the handles that archaeologists thought would have made it easier for a child to hold. The archaeologists also suggested that the bend could come from a child imitating the digging motions that they would have seen in either a plantation or a mine. However, these two suggestions are not the only possibilities. That's that's a really good point. So archaeologists have to be careful because it's always possible that there are exceptions. And some objects that would usually be associated with children might have actually been owned or or used by adults, like your Lunchables. (laughs) Right. And another way to think about it is collectible action figures. Americans would generally label them as toys. And if archaeologists found something similar in the past, they might think they were the personal belongings of a child. However, there are plenty of American adults that collect action figures or dolls. 
Yeah. So for this this exact reason, archaeologists have to be very careful about how they interpret artifacts. So future archaeologists might be very confused about all of the Star Wars memorabilia because they're collected by both children and adults. So let's think about some of the ways we categorize children's toys and possessions and what some of their characteristics might mean or indicate about certain stages of childhood. Infants and toddlers usually have brightly colored toys with large pieces that make a lot of noise. These toys might be considered boring by children who are only slightly older. And there are two real functions here. So first, babies <laughs> don't know what they should um, or shouldn't eat, specifically their toys. And so you know this if you've babysat or have kids yourself. So it's important that everything be far too large to swallow so that that baby or toddler can't choke on it. The second function is that we want to stimulate babies' minds early on as they're growing and their brains are developing. The bright colors and sounds create an interactive space for the baby and can help with pattern recognition. Think about the toys with the barnyard animal buttons that make appropriate animal sounds when pushed. And again, it's not just toys that we associate with babies today in our American culture. Think of all the things babies need just to keep them fed, clean, and and happy. So any good diaper bag is going to have bottles, diapers, clean onesies, teething rings, and probably a lot more. We associate those things with children between the ages of zero and two. However, if we saw an older child with a bottle, a diaper, or a pacifier like you had, Alex, we might think it's strange because that's considered outside of the norm in our society. (laughs) And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or wrong for an older child to have these items. It's just not the normal pattern that we see. So children tend to move past these things as their brain and behavior develop further. Older children probably wouldn't want to play with the barnyard animal toy because it would be boring to them. They've already learned that the cow goes moo. We would probably associate toys that encourage learning or imagination with children aged 3 to 8. Yeah, so for example, I had one of those Fisher-Price toolbox kits that I loved. Um, I could pretend that I was helping my parents with their building um, and furniture refurbishing projects. And it it definitely got me thinking about the logical steps of a a real-life project. Right. It's imagination, play, and education all wrapped together, preparing you for the future. Educational toys now seem to be focused on getting children ready for school, but I think that your toolbox brings up another good point. Throughout human history, children's toys have often had the purpose of slowly preparing kids for their future. Yeah, it's like like a practice. Um, so nowadays, most kids go to school, but historically, and, and even in prehistory, most children would have probably grown up to work in various jobs related to agriculture or crafts like weaving or ceramics. As a child got older, parents may have encouraged more practical, rather than imaginative, toys, perhaps preparing for them to follow in their parents' footsteps in the family business. And children would learn their trade from their parents so they could transition from play to work and slowly be prepared to take over diverse and more specialized tasks from their parents. Today we might imagine the appropriate age of this transition to be sometime during the teenage years. A mechanic might slowly start passing knowledge about engines to the child from an earlier age like 10, but might not encourage them to physically complete tasks until they are bigger and more coordinated. Historically popular livelihoods like farming and construction actually have pretty dangerous components. Children were given responsibility at a much earlier age in the past. They would have probably been given what we consider adult responsibilities much earlier. And our society might consider maybe 16 to 18 as being a normal age to get a first job. That's probably around the time that I did. However, in industrial Europe, factories even employed children under the age of 10 to work in jobs, especially ones that required small and and nimble child fingers. 
We know this through historical documents that described the children and the jobs they did in factories, but archaeologists can try to look farther back in time as well. This is more difficult because then we start to get into a period where we don't have historical documents giving us a contemporary description of life for children. Archaeologists excavating buildings believed to be ceramic manufacturing centers have found fragments of pottery that are poorly made and have smaller fingerprints on them. So some archaeologists have interpreted this as evidence of young child apprentices that were learning the craft. Researchers are assuming that, just like in historic time periods that we have records for, children start training for their future jobs early before they've reached biological adulthood. And not all archaeologists agree that those smaller fingerprints are evidence of children. So there is some variation in hand and finger size between men and women, as well as different sizes within the sexes. And so this demonstrates how difficult it can be to find information about children in the archaeological record the further back in time you go. And this is another reason why archaeologists really need to think about how children were considered within the culture that they lived in. In the last episode, we talked about what we consider to be biologically adult, but if you remember, biology and culture often don't agree. Yeah, and archaeologists really have to think about what types of toys, tools, or other materials that children of different ages might be using. And they also need to consider what spaces would be most likely to contain material related to children. Younger children with fewer responsibilities would probably keep or lose their belongings in domestic spaces, which are areas that people live, eat, and sleep in. Older children might spend most of their time in school or at work, depending on which culture they belong to because they were spending more time in those spaces. And it's not just the differences between cultures. There will also likely be differences within those same cultures based on the social and economic status of that child's family. And we'll talk about that a little bit more specifically um, in our fifth episode. For now, just think that if the adults in a family were not making enough money to provide for that family, they would consider sending an older child to work, especially if it might set them up for training for a later career. And then you might expect an older child, maybe a preteen, might have more practical items like tools or work boots. So archaeologists might also expect to find objects associated with this age group, along with artifacts from that earlier age group that we mentioned, at a place of work as well. And historical documents can be helpful in giving archaeologists insight into how children were viewed in past societies. However, sometimes even if there are documents, it's unlikely that they would give a thorough description of children at that time period. This is when archaeologists go back to the biological evidence. They might work with physical anthropologists to analyze the skeletal remains of children from the time period in question in an attempt to see what their lives might have been like. In the first two episodes of this series, we talked about growth disruptions and how they could be associated with stress, either due to illness um, or maybe physical circumstances. Adult skeletons can show these markers, and the general timing of the stresses can be estimated. But it's not just the adult skeletons that can give anthropologists insight into childhood in the past. Not all children survive into adulthood. Markers of stress and illness, fractures and possibly cause of death, can be found in the skeletons of the individuals that die during childhood. So an example of this might be some of the more physically demanding and dangerous jobs that leave evidence of healed fractures. The types and locations of these healed fractures can give clues about how these children might have gotten those injuries. So for example, children often worked with big machinery, right, because of those small, nimble fingers. And so as a result, broken fingers are more common, and we might see evidence of this. Funerary archaeologists study the way in which people were buried in the past. They study many individual burials from one location and time to find trends on how people were buried depending on the different age groups. 
In antiquity, children might have been buried with special or even just everyday objects that the mourners would have associated with children in general or or actually maybe even that specific child. And these items might also be able to give archaeologists an idea about the social status of that child, illustrating whether that child was a part of maybe a high status or a lower status family. Possessions or offerings can tell archaeologists a lot about the individual and the culture as a whole. So in prehistoric North America, the Mississippian culture had a very distinct hierarchy. At Moundville in Alabama, children of chiefs are buried with axes in particular mounds, denoting their status as potential but unrealized leaders. However, not all people are buried with possessions. Um, Religious or cultural practices might require that people go to their graves with no possessions. For example, Christian burials during the Victorian period tend to have no artifacts at all, and there would be no material to culturally assess the differences between the age groups of buried individuals. However, that doesn't mean that archaeologists and historians can't understand a person's place in society. They just have to find another way to do it. For example, during the Victorian era, tombstones with art and or words were popular. The words and art that people choose to put on headstones can be very personal, especially if that family has enough money to make a custom order. And some imagery on headstones that have been associated with the death of a child might be lamb figurines, daisies, overturned empty shoes, or sleeping children. Most of these images are linked with the innocence of a child, and it also reflects how children were viewed by that culture. With this data, archaeologists are actually studying grief in the past and how families dealt with the loss of children. This can give archaeologists information about the position of children in society. This is of particular interest during the industrial period in England because there was a differential survival of the population's children. Especially in the lower classes, which were flocking to the cities in order to work in the new factories. This caused overcrowding in the housing, which increased the incidence of disease. So both disease and harsh working conditions posed a significant threat to children's health. This led to an interesting dilemma. Was it still socially acceptable to grieve over the death of a child when frequency of child death increased? Some people have argued that when child mortality is really high, the parents didn't really grieve as much for the children when they died. But when you look at the archaeological evidence, it's possible that this isn't true. Next time you'll hear from Melissa Clark, one of our graduate students who studies the biological effects of discrimination on Catholic children in Ireland during the late 17th to early 19th centuries. And another graduate student, Catherine Markline, will also discuss her work with the skeletal remains of children from England, Greece, and Turkey. And the next time you hear from me and Alex, we will be discussing motherhood, which, as you can imagine, is a really important part of childhood. So in the meantime, uh, you know the drill. You can subscribe to our podcast or like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu. And don't forget to leave a review of the show. Remember, the more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. As always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. And as always, we hope you join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. Mm -hmm.